This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the, oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13. May be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Stuck inside these We're back now with part two in the telling of our story of Paul McCartney's song, Band on the Run, the origin of a hit song. So let's pick up where we left off in part one of this story in our episode seven. Two weeks before the band was to get on a plane to depart for Lagos, Nigeria for the upcoming recording sessions for the Band on the Run album, our lead guitarist in Paul's band Wings, Henry McCullough, up and quit Paul's band. Did you hear me? I said I quit! <laughs> the fact that guitarist Henry McCullough had up and quit added to the frustration that had been growing in the band's drummer, Denny Sywell. And so, as this information began to settle in for him, we moved to the next event, which occurred the evening before the rest of the band was to depart for Lagos. And that new event was that Paul's drummer, Denny Sywell, phoned Paul and told Paul over the phone that he was quitting as well. I just wanted to tell you I quit too. I got a bad feeling about this. Now one would think that having two-fifths of your band up and quit the evening before you were to fly 3,110 miles as the crow flies to Lagos, Nigeria, that you might reconsider the scheduling of your recording session on another continent. That's a reasonable assumption. But that would be you, not Paul McCartney. For Paul McCartney, it was off to Lagos. 
He would make an album that his departed bandmates would wish they had been on. And as it turns out, this part is true. Now, it also turns out that what Paul McCartney and the others found upon landing in Lagos, Nigeria, was not what Paul had expected. He'd somehow visualized Lagos as a riot of sound and color, ingredients that he hoped would influence the sound of his new album. What Paul experienced, though, was decidedly different. One wake-up call for Paul and the others came when Paul and Jeff Emmerich, the Abbey Road sound engineer who had accompanied Paul to Lagos, experienced the shock of visiting the recording studio. It turns out that the EMI recording studio was located on Wharf Road in the port area of Lagos. Jeff Emmerich was astonished to observe that there existed no soundproof drum booth in the studio. In fact, he discovered there were no acoustic screens located anywhere in the recording studio, and that the taping and mixing equipment were rudimentary. And when Jeff Emmerich peered out the back door of the recording studio, he realized that the record-pressing plant was actually located in an adjacent lean-to, which had a corrugated tin roof. And when he examined this structure a little more closely, the recording engineer could see the overhead sun peeking through the tin roof. Let's put a pin in that thought. Later that same day, during a break in the recording session, our recording engineer, Jeff Emmerich, was dumbfounded when he poked his head out the back door of the studio to observe how the afternoon rainstorms caused the record-pressing operators to work in ankle-deep rainwater. Now, our Paul, the optimist that he was, charmed the manager of the recording studio into hiring some carpenters to build the needed soundproofing screens. And when the carpentry efforts lagged, Paul picked up a hammer and a saw and joined in the endeavor. Meanwhile, Jeff Emmerich went ahead to make the adjustments needed in order to make the control desk suitable to record the band. The next part of this story is remarkable for what happened and for what did not happen. It goes something like this. For the band's stay in Lagos, Paul had arranged to rent two villas, which were located in a greenbelt area on the outskirts of Lagos. Paul and Linda and their children would occupy one of the villas, and their children, Heather, Mary, and little Stella, took to the surroundings immediately. They amused the security guards on the villa's grounds as they chased and caught lizards in the garden, and then as they named them to keep them as pets. The second villa that they had rented was shared by Denny Lane, the rhythm guitarist in the band, and poor Jeff Emmerich, who was paralyzed by the gigantic spiders and assemblies of centipedes and millipedes that crawled around the place. In fact, during one of the first evenings there, he found, delicately placed under his pillow, though somewhat desiccated, and placed there as if it were a hotel mint, the remains of a hairy spider, placed there with loving care by his loving roommate, Denny Lane. And with this, Jeff Emmerich moved into a local hotel.
It turns out that Paul had arranged for a mini Moog keyboard synthesizer to be packed and air freighted for the recording session in Lagos. This is the pronunciation police. In Germany, it's a fairly common name, and there it's pronounced Moog. Robert Moog. 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 Pronounced Moog. Do you know why I pulled you over? Mini Moog, Mini Moog, Mini Moog, Mini Moog, Mini Moog, Mini Moog. It turns out that Paul had arranged for a Mini Moog keyboard synthesizer to be packed and air freighted for the recording session in Lagos. And as we begin to analyze the recording process for this song, Band on the Run, the presence of this Mini Moog, Moog. Moog takes on significance. A little background is helpful. The Mini Moog, Moog represented the second generation of the original Moog synthesizer. As we will see in another minute or so, the original Moog synthesizer was unwieldy and famously difficult to operate. As a consequence of this, by 1970, the Moog, Moog company began to lose money because of declining sales. The engineers at the company, fearing that they would lose their jobs if the company failed, set about to tinker with the complex device, hoping to develop a more user-friendly apparatus. To do this, they sawed a keyboard in half to serve as the unit's input device. Then, they wired various other components together, placing them into a smaller cabinet. The engineers were stymied, however, in attempting to figure out a way to stabilize the power supply for the new, scaled-down synthesizer. As a result, the unit's now destabilized power supply would not allow for the unit's three oscillators to be completely synchronized. Out of this design flaw, though, came a significant benefit. It was this shortcoming, surprisingly, that created the synthesizer's unique, warm, and rich sound. And with this defect, I suppose you could say, a new product was born, the Mini Moog. 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 The Mini Moog, Moog. Moog was also the first synthesizer to feature a pitch wheel, allowing a musical pitch to be bent similar to how a guitar player can bend a note simply by stretching and releasing the string being played. And so, the Mini Moog, Moog, this new apparatus, turned up in Lagos, Nigeria, and was put to great melodic use by Paul McCartney in his song, Band on the Run. And to demonstrate in the next excerpt from Band on the Run, we will hear the opening phrase that Paul devised for guitar, and then we'll hear the answering phrase which is played on a mini Moog. Representing a kind of call and response motif, which corresponds to the call and response pattern we find in communications between humans. Since we are talking about the recording process for this song, 
I might point out that contemporaneous studio footage documents that it was Linda McCartney who played the mini Moog. part that Paul had devised for this song, Band on the Run. Supporting this, we also have the recollections of Tony Visconti, the renowned producer of T-Rex and David Bowie. The backstory is this. Upon Paul's return to London from Lagos, Paul contacted Tony Visconti to produce several orchestral arrangements for some of the songs being recorded. As a side note... Rabbit Hole Joe! Every time I hear you say, As a side note, there is no doubt in my mind, as your producer, that you are headed down another one of your rabbit holes. TBM, indulge me for a moment. This will turn out to be relevant to our story here. Trust me, just a quick left turn. Ugh. Okay, buckling in. Stay with me. I mentioned a moment earlier that Tony Visconti was already renowned at the time. Now, it turns out that Tony Visconti also happened to be married to Mary Hopkin, who had two big hits that had been produced by Paul a couple of years earlier. One being the song Goodbye, which had been written by Paul specifically for Mary Hopkin. Please don't wake me up too late tomorrow. story here focuses for a moment on Tony Visconti and his recollection of having been called up by Paul McCartney in 1973 upon Paul's return from Lagos. As I mentioned, Paul wanted Tony to write the orchestral arrangements for Paul's new album. Tony Visconti relates how the very next day after receiving the telephone call from Paul, he brought Mary Hopkin with him to visit at Paul's house in London. And upon arriving, Tony recollected how he and Paul settled in at the piano at one end of the big living room, and Mary Hopkin joined with Linda and the children at the far end of the oversized living room. Paul had a tape cassette player with him that day, and he proceeded to play for Tony Visconti the first piece that Paul wanted Tony to devise an orchestral arrangement for. Paul hit the play button on the tape player... And as the opening measures of the song played out in the room from the little cassette player, Tony Visconti excitedly pointed out to Paul what he proposed to do with respect to the mini-moog call and response phrase that he had just heard, saying, quote, I could double that on a very high-string violin harmonic, unquote. Tony Visconti recollected that upon hearing this, Linda McCartney immediately called out from way across the room, Oh, no, you're not. I played that part, and you're not going to step on my part. With this, Tony Visconti readily acquiesced to Linda's demand. 
Now, I should point out that much later, Tony Visconti had this to say about Linda McCartney's other contributions to the songs contained on the Band on the Run album. She played her own synths on Band on the Run, the, the intro to that. She's doing the da-da-da-da-da-da-da and synth parts throughout the whole album. And she had a lovely voice. She did backing vocals. These are the days before you can tune someone up. So if she was out of tune, uh, she'd have to be coached and she would get it right. You know, she would just get it right. And it was, it was really lovely to work with the both of them. Tony Visconti has also commented on this time period in the late 60s about the very first occasion where a synthesizer was used with great success on a recording. When the synth came out, Wendy Carlos showed that you could play classical music on that. That was tough work. It was quite tedious to do that in those days. To reflect on what Tony Visconti is referring to, we need the services of our little time machine. And we'll then do another little left turn. We have landed in the year 1968. The year the album Switched on Bach was released. This album of music composed by J.S. Bach was transcribed and recorded by Wendy Carlos and Benjamin Folkman for the Moog synthesizer. Moog! Now, it turns out that this album, featuring the Moog synthesizer, Moog, had a profound influence on the Beatles in their recording of the Abbey Road album, which occurred one year later in 1969, and on the future of progressive rock or prog rock music. And just here, you will hear our switched-on-inspired stroll-down box two-part invention in D minor. Let me modify that a bit, because I refer to this as our switched-on-inspired stroll-down box two-part invention in D minor. Actually, this is what happens when our keyboardist producer, Talkback Mike, has one too many cups of coffee. But at this juncture, let us focus for a moment on the Beatles and their use of the synthesizer on the Abbey Road album. To do this, we need to fast forward just one year to 1969. In the Beatles anthology, there is a quote from John Lennon documenting the fact that the Beatles had used the Moog... Nope. Synthesizer on the end of his song, I Want You, She's So Heavy. You can perceive how he used the moog to provide the distorted, disorienting, swirling, white noise effect we can hear on the outro of the song. Sounds like our producer, Talkback Mike, has taken it upon himself to demonstrate here by itself. This white noise effect was not musical, but when added to the mix of John's song... It provided an effect that was otherworldly, making his song entirely distinctive.
And George Harrison provided the backstory, if you will, which is also found in the anthology about having been first introduced to the Moog synthesizer. He recalled that he had first heard about the Moog synthesizer when he had been in America. And with this, he'd arranged to have a machine shipped to him in London. And after the thing arrived, he was flummoxed. He was flummoxed? Flummoxed. 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 Right. Flummoxed. George Harrison described the machine as being, quote, enormous with hundreds of jack plugs and two keyboards, unquote. But George Harrison went on to explain that, quote, it was one thing having one, a moog, that is, and another trying to make it work. There wasn't an instructional manual, and even if there had been, it would probably have been a couple of thousand pages long. I don't even think Mr. Moog knew how to get music out of it, unquote. So let me explain the daunting challenge George Harrison and the Beatles, for that matter, were faced with. In 1969, the Moog synthesizer that George Harrison took delivery of was a bulky device that consisted of separate modules. Think of one of those old pictures of telephone switchboard operators from the 1930s sitting at their switchboards, having to plug in patch cables to connect telephone calls. George Harrison's new Moog looks something like this. The modules that comprised the Moog included voltage-controlled oscillators, also called VCOs, whose pitch could be adjusted up or down by adjusting their input voltage. By the way, to accomplish this, the standard input measure was one volt per octave. At the same time, these VCOs also could output voltage, and by varying the output voltage of these VCOs, you could induce the sound of vibrato and tremolo. This function represented an innovative first for a synthesizer machine. Similarly, the Moog device used voltage to control the loudness of a sound, and it did this through the use of VCAs, or voltage-controlled amplifiers. Other components of the machine included filters, envelope generators, noise generators, ring modulators, triggers, and mixers, all of which could be used to fashion and shape different sounds. But to accomplish this, you needed to connect the selected components by way of any number of plug-in patch cables. Despite the daunting challenge, George found a way to play this newfangled device on his song, Here Comes the Sun, and on John's song, Because. And then we come to Paul McCartney. On this same Abbey Road album, Paul used the newly acquired Moog to great melodic effect. On the outro to the one song that was probably the most unappreciated, or should I say unliked, by the other three Beatles. We'll be right back after this short break, so stay with us. Penny Lane is in my 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And meanwhile, back. We're back now, and this is Joe Anastasi of Stroll Down Penny Lane. On the Abbey Road album, Paul used the newly acquired Moog to great melodic effect. On the outro, to the one song that was probably the most unliked by the other three Beatles. You'll hear what Paul devised using the Moog on this song, Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Whoa, you're going there? Sure, why not? is also quoted in the anthology, maybe a bit defensively, quote, I spent three days on Maxwell's silver hammer. I remember George saying, you've taken three days. It's only a song. Yeah, Paul said, and this is Paul again, but I want to get it right. I got some thoughts on this one, unquote. Paul would later say it was early days moog work and it took a bit of time. Okay, Joe, you've dug a hole for yourself. Now, how about I provide a little history to help us back on the Moog Righteous Path? Let me take the wheel for a minute. In the early 70s, listeners would hear many new sounds in hit, dance, pop, and rock radio. Recording artists were taking advantage of three quickly changing aspects of music recording, including the recording studios themselves, second, electric instruments and amplification, and third, the use of synthesizers. It became more common for the most successful recording artists and producers to take more time in state-of-the-art studios to try new arrangements, employ guest musicians, and use full orchestras. Producers, engineers, and artists would often employ recording tricks like manipulating acoustics, tape speed variation, loops, distortion, and other sound-altering effects, and more sound-on-sound recording offered by the increasing number of tracks becoming available on the multi-track tape recorders. The unique sounds that were being created changed the sound of radio rock and pop music. And here I'm talking about the use of amplification with electric instruments like organ, electric piano, the clavinet, and more importantly for rock music, the electric guitar. Now Dylan had already gone electric years previous. Hendrix had already died, but the distorted electric guitar was to be a fixture of rock and pop music for years. The blues of the American South was being imported back to North America with fresh new sounds on recordings by English electric guitarists, including Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, and many more. Got it. Thanks, TBM. Now, let me take the wheel. All right, one example of what TBM was just talking about was that during this time, the Honer Company in Germany 
had invented the clavinet, intending the electromechanical keyboard instrument for home use and for use in performing late medieval, baroque, and early classical music. Stevie Wonder had a better idea for this new instrument. By 1972, Stevie Wonder's song Superstition topped the charts in the U.S. with him playing a funky clavinet riff on a Honer clavinet Model C. To boot, on this song, he played the bass part on a Moog synthesizer. Joe, 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 I got it, let me take the wheel. He drives me crazy. Now we come to that third change in recorded music that was happening around that time. The new synthesizers from Moog and Arp, they were getting into the hands of jazz, pop, rock, and dance music makers. Consider that it is a very rare instrumental tune that becomes a top 40 hit, like the instrumental Popcorn, which prominently featured a synthesizer. These synthesizer sounds were popular enough to stand above legendary vocalists on the charts at the time. They beat out Elvis, Carly Simon, Stevie Wonder, Elton John. They beat out Paul and George of the Beatles, Glenn Campbell, Donny Osmond, Michael Jackson. This was new. Narrator, that's me. Got it. Thanks, TBM. Ooh. He's sitting there playing popcorn on his Moog while he's driving, of all things. Let me take the wheel. We need to get out of here. Where were we? Okay, I remember. One example of what TBM was talking about occurred just a couple of months after Stevie Wonder's song Superstition topped the charts in the U.S. And this was represented by the Edgar Winter Group having released a single from their 1972 album, They Only Come Out at Night. The hit instrumental featured Edgar Winter playing an ARP 2600 synthesizer. The name of the song was Frankenstein, and over one million records were sold. The song topped the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart for one week in May 1973, before it was replaced by Paul McCartney's song, My Love. And now we've come full circle, back to Paul McCartney. See, just a few left turns. I was wondering how you were gonna get back on course. TBM, oh ye of little faith. We just used our little time machine to fast forward a couple of months. And with this last left turn, we are back in Lagos, Nigeria for the recording session for Paul's new song, Band on the Run. Now, let's turn back to Paul and Linda setting up a little homestead for their stay in Lagos 
There was one other advantage that was provided by renting the villas in this greenbelt area outside Lagos. For just down the dirt lane was a small country club. There, on the days not scheduled for the Wings recording sessions, the children, Heather, Mary, and Stella would enjoy the swimming pool at the club. Despite the seemingly safe and protected environment of this greenbelt area, many of the expats that live there warned Paul and Linda to not go walking in the lane, especially after sunset. Optimists that they were though, both Paul and Linda believed that this admonishment did not apply to the short distance that lay between the villa that they had rented and the country club just down the lane. So following their instincts, Paul and Linda decided to head home one evening on foot. So on this dusky early evening, Paul and Linda had not walked very far before a car approached from behind in the lane. The car then slowed to a crawl. Paul waved to the car, indicating that he and Linda were just fine and the two of them continued walking toward their villa. The dusty looking car rolled past them slowly and then stopped. And in the fading light, as Paul and Linda watched this event unfold, five men got out of the beat up looking car. Of the five men that got out of the car, the shortest one among them, approached Paul and then whipped out a knife, and he set about brandishing its blade in Paul's face. Protective as she always was of Paul, Linda rushed to stand next to Paul. She shouted at the man holding the knife in Paul's face. Don't kill him! He's beat up Paul! Paul stood there quietly, and then he proceeded to hand over his wallet to the man holding the knife. Then, his camera. The shorter fellow holding the knife proceeded to point to Paul's wristwatch. As Paul complied with this demand, another thug pulled at Paul's shoulder bag. Paul reluctantly handed over the shoulder bag as well. The five assailants got back into the car, slammed the car doors, and drove off down the dirt lane. The next morning at the EMI recording studio, Paul related this story to the others in the studio. When the studio manager heard the story, he let out a low whistle. The studio manager said that because Paul and Linda had looked like tourists to the thugs, that Paul was lucky that the thugs had knifed him. The studio manager then added that, quote, if they thought you could have identified them to the police, they would have finished you off. Unquote. Jeff Emmerich, the recording engineer for the session, recounted that Paul visibly blanched upon hearing this and that Linda looked about to faint. Paul then explained to the assembled group that his shoulder bag, the one that had been stolen, had contained all of the demo tapes of all of the songs that Paul had intended to record in Lagos. Jeff Emmerich's eyes went wide on hearing this. The recording engineer later documented how Paul, optimist that he was, then said, I think I can remember how most of the songs go, and those that I can't remember, well, I guess I'll have to write some new ones. 
And so after this day, Jeff Emmerich has recounted that the lyrics to the song that became the hit single, Band on the Run, were changed around a bit to reflect being abandoned by some of his bandmates, and to reflect the feeling of having been imprisoned in this ramshackle recording studio in this very strange and dangerous land. Stuck inside these four walls Stand inside Jeff Emmerich has provided us with a description of the recording process for the album in Lagos, Nigeria. So let's turn to this. According to Jeff Emmerich, Paul played all the drum tracks on the album. As a matter of fact, Jeff Emmerich observed that Paul enthusiastically enjoyed getting behind the drum kit. The recording process then followed a set routine. Backing tracks to a song would first be laid down with Paul on the drums, with Denny Lane playing rhythm guitar. In some cases, the process would involve both Paul and Denny playing acoustic guitars for the basic rhythm track. The songs were then built up, with additional tracks being added, layer by layer. The whole routine, however, came to a crashing halt there in Lagos, Nigeria, late one Friday afternoon. The way things unfolded that day, Paul was in the recording studio, standing in front of a microphone, as he proceeded to sing the lead vocal track to a song, when he began to gasp for air, saying he couldn't breathe. The others immediately thought to have him go outside to breathe some fresh air. The problem was that this was Lagos, Nigeria, and it was sweltering hot, and it was late in the afternoon with the sun high overhead. In the stifling heat, Paul complained that he was feeling worse, and he then began to bend at the waist before fainting dead away at everybody's feet. Linda screamed hysterically. He's having a heart attack! Get an ambulance! Somebody call an ambulance! He's having a heart attack! An assistant rushed inside to fetch the studio manager who emerged within a minute. The studio manager observed Paul on the ground with Linda supporting his head. I'll get my car, the studio manager said. Linda cried out, No! We need an ambulance! The studio manager knelt beside Linda where she was holding Paul's head in her hands, and he explained calmly, I can get Paul to the hospital much sooner than an ambulance could. The manager then rose and headed out to get his car. When he arrived back with it, Paul had begun to come around a bit. The others lifted Paul from the ground and set him down in the back seat of the car. Linda sat with Paul in the back seat as one of the roadies slammed the car door shut. The roadie went around to the front of the car, slid into the front passenger seat, slammed the car door, and with that, the manager put the car in gear and drove away. A few hours later, Linda phoned from the hospital. She reported that Paul was okay and that he was being released from the hospital. She added that they would be heading back to the rented villa. After ensuring that Paul rested through the weekend, Paul and Linda reported back to the recording studio that next Monday. She recounted to the others that the official diagnosis had been that Paul had experienced 
bronchial tube spasms brought on by excessive smoking. Thankfully, Paul seemed to have, by then, fully recovered, and he never experienced that kind of spell again during the remainder of their stay in Lagos. One final note about this Lagos experience. Upon returning to London to finish off the album at George Martin's AIR Studios, Paul found a letter addressed to him. The letter to Paul was from EMI's group director, Len Wood, stating emphatically that under no circumstances should Paul consider recording at EMI's recording studio in Lagos because of a reported outbreak of cholera. Now, we turn to the third thread in our story, which covers the other song that served as an inspiration for the breakout section of Paul's song, Band on the Run. Let's review the record, so to speak. In the first two sections of this song, Band on the Run, Paul succinctly established that melancholy feeling of being locked up. Then he came up with the idea of having the last section of the song to be about a prison breakout. But where did this little bit of inspiration come from? Well, he has said that an important stimulus was provided by the stories of the American Old West. And then Paul has also mentioned that he was struck by a recent song that he had heard coming from a new band in America. It was this song. was the song that Paul had listened to from that brand new band from America called The Eagles. And it was when Paul heard this song by The Eagles that he was inspired to write the third section of his song, Band on the Run. For it was this song by The Eagles, Desperado, tinged with the dusty feeling of the American Old West that became an inspiration for Paul's prisoner characters breaking out of prison in his song, Band on the Run.
And I hope you enjoyed this podcast of Stroll Down Penny Lane. Please join us again next time as we explore further the life and music of Paul McCartney. And come see us at one of our shows if you are in the neighborhood. You'll find us at strolldownpennylane.com slash podcast or with your favorite podcast app. We are a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Network.